0: came to realize that what started out as a natural disaster became a man-made
1: disaster. We cannot control the natural disaster, but what we can do is control our response.
2: Have you ever wondered whether disasters are actually natural? If so, you're in the right place.
3: Hello and welcome. My name is Jason von Maddy.
2: And I am Xenia Chmutena.
3: This is Disasters Deconstructed, a podcast where we examine why disasters really happen.
2: Thank you for tuning in.
3: You thought you heard the end of us for a few months, but we're back. And this is another special episode of Disasters Deconstructed. Um, We wanted to... Release some new content around COVID nineteen. This pandemic is the largest public health and disaster management event any of us are likely to be part of. You know, as as participant observers, and there's a lot of research going on, like we mentioned in the end of our season three. Some of the research that's where people are looking at responses by international organizations and national governments. But today we want to talk about um, something that's. Um, equally important, which is the everyday responses of individuals, small groups, neighborhoods, civil society, faith organizations, schools, universities, um, technical institutes, vocational training centers, small and medium enterprises, and local government units.
2: And I guess some of you may have seen the call for collecting and sharing different positive responses, and this call has been organized by Ben Wisner and colleagues. And we've put together a kind of concept note in which um, by positive response, we refer to actions that involve kindness and compassion and also care for others, as well as altruism. And the reason we started collecting positive responses is because we are curious about the employment of humor and different cultural vehicles such as songs, visual art, writing and storytelling. To us, positive action may also involve careful and imaginative reflection on the needs of others. So these are the needs uh, that uh, may affect some people and may be completely neglected by, you know, the privileged ones. So this is what we want to talk about today. And today on our special episode, we've got four amazing guests who are working um, in the space of disaster, somewhat in the space of art, and also have been sharing examples of positive responses with us. And it's absolutely wonderful that we, today, represent a very broad geographical um, perspectives as well as disciplinary perspectives. So welcome. Uh, today with us, we've got, we've got Claudia uh, gonzalez Musio from Chile. Hi, Claudia. Hello. How are you? <laughs> very well. We've got James Sampson from Manchester. Hi, James.
1: Hello. Good to meet you.
2: We've got Victor Marchesini from Brazil. Hey, Victor.
0: Hi, Senia. Hi,
4: James.
2: And we've got Emmanuel Raju from Copenhagen.
4: Hello. Hi. Good to be back.
2: <laughs> oh, yes, again. <laughs> Welcome, everyone.
3: Yeah, thanks all for being with us. So I guess I wanted to start off um, by, by just asking about this um, idea of positive response. Why do you think it's important that we cover these positive responses in the midst of all the bad news?
5: in times like this, where everything around us remind that we are facing a global crisis and bad news is what we hear the most. Uh, we also need to look for and share positive behaviors that we can observe about people helping each other, uh, as we all try to deal with the uncertainty every day. At this time, it is important to highlight those who are putting the needs of others first. And those who are reinventing themselves to overcome economic difficulties, for example, and those who are seeking innovative responses to the various challenges posed by this pandemic, positive responses are remarkable, and we should spread them as to be contagious.
4: Yeah,
3: that's great. And I think um, a lot of people are maybe feeling a bit hopeless, and part of that is is to do with the narratives that they have maybe accepted about. You know, maybe some myths about human behavior, you know, how people are greedy or self-serving or, you know, by nature. And I think in looking at positive responses, maybe we can push back against that, do you think?
1: I mean, I would say just from the UK's perspective, there has been a, a huge sort of groundswell of people that are wanting to offer mutual aid, mutual support at the very, uh, Most sort of micro level, but it's strangely at a time when everyone is actually isolated in their own houses. Hmm. So it's it's this strange mixture of this sort of outpouring of a desire to be kind, compassionate, to be neighbourly at a time when we're suddenly told we can't be. And that's the strangest part of this uh, disaster, is that it's mixing lockdown and individual sort of micro nuclear units with this massive desire to be more community or mutually focused. Yeah,
0: and uh, it's interesting because usually in disaster recovery phase, we have a lot of movement of people to to, to work together, to, to rebuild their houses. And in this long-term disaster response that we are facing now, uh, we, we need to reinvent the ways that... Um, we can support this long- term disaster response and recovery and uh, and I, in Brazil, we are collecting some examples, uh, and we have a lot of uh, examples of uh, universities and NGOs and communities working together. Even the scientific projects are being uh, reframed,
4: right. To, to include this component, I think it's not the first time that we see positive responses, right? So even, in, even during any disaster, we see a number of initiatives of people coming together to help, to support. But I think, as James said, the strangest thing about this one is, is the fact that we are isolated in our homes and yet there is a lot of noble um, kind acts that we see around. But it's really unfortunate that not enough attention is being paid to sort of this solidarity.
2: You know, there is always positive response, but strangely i think this is the pretty much the first time where many of us have actually decided to collect quite a lot of evidence about it right and you know to make an effort in trying to make sure that we don't forget that this positive response is there we don't this is something we don't really talk very often in disasters uh, for for whatever reason i think all of you have reflected that the motivation for the positive responses are very Different, you know, some maybe feel that there is a kind of duty of obligation, you know, to to positively respond and help the neighbor, or maybe it's uh, people's political or religious or ideological experience that kind of motivates them um, to to really help other and respond respond positively. And let's talk about some of the examples because all of you have been sharing some fantastic examples. And Claudia, I want to start with you. So we've been for a couple of weeks now experiencing um exchanging different stories, and you've sent me quite a few stories from Chile. And I think my favorite story that you sent to me that really made me cry was about the old um woman who used to be a seamstress, and then she made um, lots of face masks for her um for her neighbor, although she was pretty much blind. And it was just, you know such a kind of kind and humane story um and absolutely loved it so can you tell us a little bit more what are your favorite stories you know what what acts of kindness do we see happening in chile
5: yeah well the one of the elderly woman is one of my favorites too but there's also a teacher who prepared and shared more than 100 activities for young children and toddlers that uh, can be made with items that you can e- easily find at home and they don't need more time from parents and do not involve spending money of course Uh, it was very good because there were a lot of little children that they cannot go to school and for parents uh, the little ones are the ones to take more time from them i also applaud that there are some people offering psychological and psychiatric sessions for free Beside the individuals, there are also emerging groups. There are one, for example, called Amigue Social, that arose from the pre-existing social crisis here, and they are using Twitter and other online platforms. They receive requests for help, and they also offers from those who can collaborate, and they connect each other. Um, there is another group called Mass for Free, and they created a sort of of change where some people provide fabric others make masks uh, with using sewing machines and there are others who donate the time to transport the masks to where they are needed and in the same line there are there is uh, one NGO called Movidos por Chile and they coordinate with other organizations the response of, uh, to various emergencies not just this one they are like working from two years or so, uh, to cover the emergencies generated by fires, earthquake, and anything. And in this opportunity, they are connecting initiatives to support individuals and groups with their specific needs, with those that can contribute mostly with money. They are a bridge between donors and recipients. I think that there are a lot of good responses, but those are my favorites, I think.
2: Thank you. And are they covered well in the media or do you kind of have to go and dig for them?
5: Uh, not pretty much. Uh, they are mostly covered in social networks, I think, mm-hmm. uh, and it should be uh, more widely, I think.
3: I think this like, um, speaks to the broader um, issue of how human behavior is framed in relation to disaster processes and usually yeah. we're, we're looking at disaster behavior um, you know over a shorter period of time perhaps where we talk about these stories of disasters historically where people come together and act in solidarity um, but then they go back to normal so to say right and competing with each other and I think it's this is such an opportunity to maybe look at how people um, are naturally inclined to behave towards each other when they're faced with a crisis. And so, Victor, I wanted to come to you. We, we have been um, looking at news out of Brazil, and it seems to be mostly about the president and the crude sort of political response. Um, so I'm wondering, how are people in Brazil maintaining hope and, and staying positive? What kind of actions are they taking on the
0: ground? Yeah, uh, we have several examples in islands. for instance, we have in Rio de Janeiro, uh, some universities, the Federal University of Rio de Janeiro, NGOs and communities that are uh, working together. And one of the examples is some of our partners of the Ruby Latin project, Uh, In the neighborhood of Preventorio in Iteroi, the Federal University is helping the local community bank to raise funding, collect donations, distributing face masks and food parcels that are provided by small rural uh, farmers. Uh, Other interesting initiative in Rio is the work of uh, NGO called Data Lab that has collected data about cases of COVID-19 in slums and also the cascading impacts on food insecurity, unemployment, violence, suicide in Islam. And in Data Lab, the NGO, is also collecting examples of positive response black women movement living in islam's are uh, creating an in- initiative called quarantine in Wak- wakanda right to to share the the experiences one interesting initiative in rio with the scientific project urbilatan that uh engaged scientists from uh, computer science and, and other from human science and also local NGOs and community and the community bank right uh, that gives microcredit for uh, the residents and one interesting point is now they, they have to organize an emergency committee uh, in the community yeah. To uh not only to collect the donations but to prepare the all the logistics involved, right? To distribute food parcels. And uh they need they discover uh they find out that uh they uh they need uh, a detailed map of the neighborhood hmm. because they, they 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 don't have this detailed map. So They identify the the need of of doing a participatory mapping, right? To improve the the logistics of distribution of food parcels. So uh, the university are working together with the community because uh, they identify that some uh, basic concepts about uh, accountability, right? they, They need to work. They need to learn and work to to distribute the donations, to produce the face masks. So it's um, an interesting uh, initiative, right? Uh, The the, the initial focus of the the project uh, was to uh, create, increase the resilience to landslides. But now the scenario is completely uh, different thanks that now in Rio it's not the rainy season right but we have other places in Brazil other cities such as Manaus and even Salvador in Bahia that now are facing uh, an amount of Covid-19 cases and uh, landslides and floods so it's a complex scenario
3: And Emmanuel, I just want to come over to you. So you're originally from India. So maybe you could tell us some stories uh, of what is going on there.
4: Yes, there's been a, there's been a lot going on. And, uh, and I think as Claudio said, there's not a lot that's being covered by sort of the big media houses, right? So all of this is what are stories that we get to know from friends. There's, there's bits and pieces of this information everywhere or through social media or through our own networks. Um, one thing that, that moved me, for example, was um, there were many individuals, uh, individual stories of, of, um, of people had, had saved up to go to the Hajj uh, on their pilgrimage and individuals donated that savings for the COVID-19 response. And I think that's a huge, it, it's a very big thing in Islam for sort of, you know, to, to prepare themselves and save, to go to Hajj and to donate that is is really a remarkable gesture. I think there are both big and small sort of initiatives. And some of them are very individuals. Some of them are working with local governments, for example, some of them are working at the community level, for example, um, take the example of crowdfunding. Zomato said, Zomato is a big name, a food name. And they said, we want to, uh, they sort of asked, they sort of opened up for donations. It, it's, it's, it's amazing to see how many people contributed financially to support a lot of people, daily wage laborers, daily wage workers who needed sort of, you know, food because we had a big lockdown in India that is ongoing now. So how are these people going to feed themselves without any work, without being able, without any wages or without being able to go outside and get food? So, um, so it's amazing to see that sort of, um, that sort of, a, of collective spirit another example where uh, singers where singers have come together doing a cappella videos from their homes so that they can reach out bringing a little bit of music bringing a little bit of life into this you know into this space where everyone's like oh my god how are we going to get through this Another big thing, I think, big initiative is a group of scientists, like um, more, than, more than 200 scientists have come together because there is so much of fake news, what we call infodemic, right? So much of fake news going around. COVID-19 is also a battle for science in some way, I mean, in many places. So the group of these 300 Indian scientists have come together saying it's our, it's our role to sort of not sit back and look at, all this fake news that's going around to bust the hoax, right. To bust the fake news that's going around. Um, my own institution, for example, St. Joseph's college Bangalore has already reached out to about 43,000 families in Karnataka, in Bangalore, in Southern India. But during these times, they just, they just call out for volunteers. A number of students who are willing to come and support their initiatives is, um, is fantastic. Another, another example, a small one that moved me was, um, in the state of Rajasthan, where, so because of the lockdown, a number of migrants have been trying to walk hundreds of kilometres to reach their homes. Um, This has made a lot of headline for very good reason, right? And for the first time that we see the invisible in society in some sense. And um, so when these migrants were walking home, um, a school, a rural school in Rajasthan was very kind to sort of accommodate them and families were taking turns to cook meals for all of them. It, in, in a news article, it says they were missing some sort of physical activity of, of what to do and, and what were they doing during this lockdown. And they took the initiative on themselves. They'd seen the state of the rural school. So they started painting the school. They were like, when, when the kids come back, they're going to be happy. And I think, and I think these, from both sides, right, I think it, it really moved me. And I'm, and I'm sitting and thinking, why aren't these stories making headlines?
2: yeah absolutely and it's it's fantastic to see how the range of positive response is really so broad, right from personal efforts to a much bigger community efforts and you know from exactly. financial donations to physical um help and kind of manual labor that we don't see otherwise but And you mentioned it, Emmanuel, what uh, interests me, I guess, most, and the stories I found really fascinating, are those of artistic response. And in England, uh, there's been an initiative about sofa singers, and I'm sure we've all seen the playful use of open-air balcony singing in Italy. And all of that demonstrated, I guess, how very low-tech initiatives can be very, very effective. James, so I'd like to ask you now, you started the Artful Care blog where people are invited to share examples of artful care and many artistic responses to COVID have indeed been shared on the blog. So what motivated you to do that and what role does the art have to play in our response to COVID-19?
1: I suppose I was motivated by very quickly seeing a huge number of um, artistic responses emerging on social media and realized that very quickly we would lose sight or uh, lose connection between them. Also, I suppose, from the point of view of the arts, the arts are one of the first things that all shut down. So museums closed, galleries closed, theaters, uh, live music venues, and so forth. So there was a sudden awareness that there was a huge number of artists whose day jobs ended overnight. Um, And those artists, of course, wanted to keep um, contributing and keep making their art. So I think on, on the one hand there was a sort of the artists themselves who wanted to keep working and keep finding new and innovative ways of connecting. But then I think there's a more human part of it. Is that if we're talking about a disaster, uh, we have to think about what is it that's uh, what what have we lost in this disaster? Uh, and one of the things we've lost, obviously, is human connection. I mean, obviously, there's human life and illness and things like that but we've all lost connection. And the arts are one very, very um, good means of keeping people connected. And I think you, you mentioned the singing across the balconies, and I sort of think that's a fantastic, the sort of almost symbolic version of what the arts are trying to do. They're trying to reach out across this sort of the balcony between you and another apartment uh, and connect to the person over there. And that's done with voices in that one. But There are loads of examples of people doing it with craft, uh, with playing sort of songs online, with people contributing poetry and building poetry online. So I think it's that sense of the desire to connect. And I wanted to sort of keep track of some of these because I find them so interesting um, and sort of
2: important for the legacy of this stuff, what, what happens with COVID. Yeah, you know, I, I found it fascinating in the UK is that, well, we know that arts are very underfunded and I guess they will become. Even more undefunded, you know, as as a result um, of the pandemic. But what was fascinating to me is that art is what keeps us going. You know, we now have access to free national theater plays and orchestra and ballet, you know, all streaming for everyone for free. Um, And it's somehow art has become accessible to everyone um, in order to keep us all going.
1: Yes. And I I think I'd add to that. What I've enjoyed seeing is, um Almost a leveling out of who is the artist and who is allowed to be an artist. Um, I liked what Claudia said about the theme, the seamstress. Is what you are also seeing is that um there isn't the opera singers are are and the, the, the famous playwrights on the one hand, and then sort of other forms of art sort of secondary. I think what we're noticing is the craft people, and there's I think one of those, there's an amazing sort of diversity of craft people online. And I think they are providing a hugely important service. So there's there's the the sewers, the knitters, the crocheters, the um, those, the gardeners, the cooks. These people are actually, from my point of view, part of this wider cultural arts community. Um, And I think the person who's using their skill to pull together some um, uh, personal protective equipment, and that person who's doing some online, creating an online song. Apart, part of the same sort of ecology
3: here. We talked about how the media, broadly speaking, doesn't really focus on these stories and focuses on maybe the stories about people Exploiting others, which is, which is something we need to think about, especially when it's a discussion about the oppression of people on the margins by the powerful. But why, why are those the stories that journalists and the media networks run with rather than all of these wonderful um, stories which, they, which are happening, which they have, which they can talk about if they want to?
1: I suppose this is from my point of view that, yes, those are stories that circulate. But I've been surprised in the UK, certainly, about the willingness to provide space for the stories of kindness and compassion. Almost the end of every news item, certainly BBC and those type of news outlets, tends to go, and now for the story of kindness or mutual aid. So I've been surprised by that. But I suppose I'm therefore also slightly suspicious about it, that there is um, we're, there's a sentimentalization slightly of, of new heroes in this, um, in this pandemic. Uh, we just have to look at the, the guy who's just turned 100 and has raised 30 billion for the NHS. <laughs> there is a strange um, point where the good stories, I'm a bit worried, are also masking other things in, in the UK as well.
3: I think that's a great point, James. And um, certainly, something we see in disasters is these narratives of heroes and villains, and um, there is certainly a agenda behind some of the positive stories that we hear—the the stories of heroes and that maybe focus on individual achievement of doing something good, and like this is what you should all do, rather than maybe do something that takes down the the oppressive system which caused this in the first place
2: yeah i agree with, with all of this and particularly you know again in the uk where we are sort of watching covid unfold we've seen so many stories of, that have been about positive response and help to the national health service um and to me whilst you know whilst it's wonderful that Cooks are providing meals, and many hotels have opened the doors. You know, it seems like all of a sudden we see the story of charity, which shouldn't be there, because you know, instead the government should have been supporting the national health service all along instead of cutting it, whilst we are paying taxes. You know, of course, everyone is very happy to support it, uh, but it's not the general population that brought the NHS on its knees, and it's just so sad to see unfolding and how these stories have become, oh, look so positive. You know, everyone supports NHS. Of course, everyone supports NHS because everyone's understanding its importance, but government doesn't do so when it's not pandemic.
1: I've been trying to work out how to value things like solidarity, mutual aid, which I do value, at the same time as being critical of the fact that taxes are a great example of mutual aid. Uh, And our national health service, in particular, our social care services have been uh, decimated over the last 20 years. So how do we value solidarity without it becoming an an excuse for the government's uh, incompetence?
3: Over here in the United States, we have uh, totally different narratives
5: emerging, you know,
3: where we have a highly privatized health system. And these these weird debates which were, are seem kind of foreign to me having lived in countries with uh, public health care for the last 30 years and then coming to a country where that's suddenly not an expectation that's another conversation i think but i think it speaks to like this opportunity um, at this moment to for people to really unpack some of the systems that we rely on in society and some of the things that we that are maybe normal and we have this huge disruption to everything and people are having conversations about, well, do we want to go back to normal? Do we, do, should we think about long-term social, economic and political change? How do you guys see the
1: opportunities available?
5: Probably rethinking cities will be crucial, population density, distance the presence of balconies and terraces and other spaces that have become very important at this moment, but also activities and the relation between city and nature, for example. And I still hope that collective action might be relevant for that to deal with inequalities that became evident because of the crisis, but also before that, for example, in Places like here in Latin America, where a lot of countries were dealing with a socio-economic crisis before of the COVID-19 one, I hope we keep moving and changing things. I'm still positive about that.
4: There is hope. These voices of hope, the message that we care, that we share, stays alive. And I think that's really important. As much as the COVID has revealed existing inequality, all of a sudden the invisible of society have become visible, right? For example, in India, all of a sudden you see the migrants and the daily wage workers walking across the country, becoming heroes that um, hang on a second. These are the guys who've built our cities and, and nobody has ever spoken about them before this, right? As much as we've spoken about today. And I, and, and for me, I think it's important that this sort of dignity, respect as basic as human rights comes to life and stays forever for these people. I just hope that that message carries forward. And the essence of all of this is, is that there was clearly a lack of social protection. And I think those social protection measures need to come to place starting from now.
3: I think that's a, such an important theme. Emmanuel, as to like this question of who really is essential? Who's an essential worker? Because I, I think the, that we're having to reevaluate um, the values that we that we place on, on people and, and actually question, you know, is this kind of economic lens rooted in our, our global capitalist system the right way to value human beings? You
1: know, one of the positives for me is exactly on this theme is we've sort of let the genie out of the bottle on what we're referring to as key workers in the UK or essential workers. Because once that has become a term that becomes part of the familiar discourse, it's, it's a really powerfully political way of um, ensuring that that community of workers um, has value and status in the future. Whether they do or not is another thing, but it's a really useful... Um, Sort of set of terms for us to actually make sure that that group of individuals gets the, the proper support, pay, and so forth. Yeah,
0: I hope that the the social movements fight for better uh, health systems and social protection mechanisms. We are fighting against far right parties in everywhere, so we we need to resist to these To these new ways of capitalism, right?
3: All of us on this call are, are living in countries where the government is
0: adopting
3: uh, these kinds of policies and there is, a, there is definitely a, a danger of this pandemic being used as a platform to consolidate power and to further repress opposition. So I wonder if any of you have, have thoughts on how we can fight back against that and stop that from, stop this from being a, an opportunity for um, authoritarian governments to further consolidate their own position?
4: Ah, that's a tough one, Jason. I think we need more initiatives like what, for example, the, the initiative that I spoke about, particularly, for example, with Indian scientists coming out, um, sort of saying there's a lot of false messaging going on out there and let's try and fix some of that. Um, because I think today's social media is so powerful that there is so much of packaging and repackaging of information that's going on there. I do think, as scientists, we have a really big role to play in sort of demystifying some of these things.
2: You know, I also wonder, maybe this, crisis will help help us to realize that we're all humans after all because i think in recent years there's been so much political division between people you know for for a variety of reasons um, in in different countries and maybe this personal kindness on very individual level and you know just smiling to each other on the street from two meters apart and just saying hello to people that you've never seen before maybe that will help us to somehow move forward and try to reach something better politically, socially, economically, just because we would realize that actually we're all in it together.
1: I, I agree with that strongly. I, I think we need to hold on to our memories of what we have realised is important, who we've realized are important, what aspects of the quality of our lives we've missed and we realize are important, but we hadn't concentrated on before. So I think there is there's a sort of memory piece of work to be done here to remind ourselves what did we learn from the restrictions of COVID that should allow us to press for what are the important things of the good quality of life for people. And surprise, surprise, they aren't some of the really obvious things. They are human connection, the arts, mutual support, being with your friends, socialising, all these things. But actually, good societies are built on good connections for those sorts of things.
5: Mm, totally. I would like to think that most of these emerging groups or people helping each other will keep tight together after this crisis, especially if this uh, is a long one. If it is stopped too suddenly, I'm not sure if it will happen, but if it takes a long time for recovery, I think it is an opportunity to change things deeply.
2: That's been absolutely fantastic talking to you all. And it's so nice to see that there are so many positive responses everywhere. And yeah, let's let's keep collecting them. Let's keep them coming. And of course, for the listeners, if you know of any interesting positive responses, it is seen any examples of those. Please send them to us as we would like uh, to collate as many as we possibly can.
3: So Is there going to be like a public facing like repository or place that we that people can see more of these stories?
2: Oh, well, yeah. So these stories are now collate- collated by Ben Wisner. And um, there is more, so the concept note is posted on the uh, Gender and Disaster Network website. So, you know, please submit those stories there and I guess eventually we'll collate them and share them. Thank you so much, uh, Claudia, James, Emanuel and Victor for your time. Uh, it's, it's wonderful to have you all here.
4: Thanks for having us.
0: Thanks,
2: Kaiseli and
4: Jason.
5: Thank you all.
1: Thank you very much for having me.
3: Thank you for being with us today. Before we go, a few quick reminders about how to stay connected.
2: You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at DisastersDecon.
3: The podcast is available on all the major platforms. Please download, share, and most importantly, subscribe.
2: And if you haven't already done this, we really appreciate your ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts. This will help us to continue making content for you.
3: You've been listening to Disasters Deconstructed. And don't forget... Disasters are not natural. See you next time. You've been listening to Jason and Ksenia, as well as our guests, James, Emmanuel, Claudia, and Victor on Disasters Deconstructed
1: Podcast.